So we're set to go? All right. Well, it's a little, um, it's a little overwhelming to uh, see the fruit of the next generation, in part because I'm such a mess. And so, always worried that I would mess you guys up. Uh, but the Lord has done a mighty work among you, so that's, that's really good. Uh, Rabbi Stewart wanted to be with us today. He called this morning. He was not feeling so well, so he's going to try to see us next week. So that'll be great. So we are in Romans. In our study of the letter of Romans, two things have been made clear. The first one is that there is a righteousness of faith independent of the Torah and yet testified to by the Torah and the prophets and that faith is a righteousness of Abraham. God, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. The justification, therefore, is a gift of God's grace. It cannot be earned. It's not obtained by works. And we enter that grace by faith, which has a goal of us ultimately being sharers in his glorification, whatever that means. But there's a faith process that we have to engage in. And Paul wants us to rejoice in that even though it is tough. Because the testing of our faith brings endurance which establishes character as proof that our hope is sure and will not disappoint us. The second thing is that we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. This part of the gospel doesn't always get shared. So that we won't continue to be slaves of sin. Sin and death work against us, but grace and life works for us. Paul goes out of his way in Romans to say that there's nothing wrong with the Torah. That it is good and that it is holy. But he says that there's another law, the law of sin and death that's in our flesh. And that one reacts to the Torah of God. It reacts to the commandments of God and causes a flood of sin. But what the Torah could not do, that is give life, weak through the flesh, God did in sending His Son to condemn sin in the flesh so that we could begin to approximate first in this life fully in the kingdom what the requirements of the law are because we will be rid of these bodies. We have to set our mind on the spirit and not on the flesh because if we set it on the flesh we'll go back into that corruption and the death. If we set it on the spirit we will live although we will be battling ourselves and the world and the devil until the resurrection. At that point we will become adopted sons and daughters. No longer children. Now sons and daughters of God whatever that means. John says Now we are the children of God. It does not appear what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. And we will share in His glory. Peter describes that as participating in His divinity. I have no idea what that means. But there is so much that God is preparing for us. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, hasn't even entered into the imagination of man the things that God is preparing for us. So we ended last time with that 
big picture of what God's going to do. Those who be called, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. He justified Him. He'll sanctify us. He'll glorify us. All of that good stuff. Both Jews and Gentiles. And now we enter into the roughest part of Romans. It's a part where if you read commentaries, all of a sudden there's less written and it's less specific. Uh, He's going to return to the subject of Israel in the next three chapters. I'd like to do it all in one time, but I can't do it. We really need to unpack it. That's why I've been asking you to read 9, 10, and 11. Because as we go through this, things are going to trigger. And part of that is because this section has been made even more difficult. Because much of the church has viewed it through replacement theology. Or as the basis of Calvinism. And because when Paul talks about Israel... We think of the present state of Christianity and Judaism that was nowhere in his mind. The faith at this time was centered in Jerusalem and expanding into diaspora among Jews and Gentiles. And this idea of Judaism and Christianity as separate religions simply simply didn't exist. So we have to see this first and foremost in the context of as it's being written... And then we will have to apply it to the changes that have been made uh, since then. So, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the Torah and the temple service and the promises. And the fathers, and from not only the fathers, but The Messiah, according to the flesh, has come from them. The one who is blessed of God over all. Amen. Paul kind of goes into a doxology here. Israel had waited and waited and waited for God to bring about all the promises. And in the control of Rome over them, they had gone through so much. The temple had finally been rebuilt, maybe perhaps we're past that diaspora, we're going to come back into the land and it's going to be great and the Messiah will come and then the Messiah will sit on the throne of David and He will reign over the nations and all of the promises will be great. wasn't quite what they got. Now they expected that Jesus was the Messiah Because he was raising the dead. He was feeding multitudes. He was healing the sick. Boy, if that guy's in charge of your army, you can take the Romans out. But he didn't come for that. That time, he came to take away the sin of Jacob. Paul says, in the fullness of time, he was born of a woman 
under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That's not us, that's Israel. So Paul says he's got terrible sorrow and grief regarding his kinsmen. Why? Because there are many, many, many in Israel at the time of Paul who are rejecting the gospel. And Paul knows this well because he was one of them. He was an oppressor of the church, an oppressor of that gospel, thinking he was doing God a favor. So he knows the grief not only of his own blindness in the past, but of the blindness that he sees in Israel that he's going to talk about in these next three chapters. Because as Israelites, they have an advantage. He talked about that in chapter 3. What advantage does the Jew have much in every way? And here he lists them. They have the promises, they have the covenants, they have the Torah, they have the temple. That adoption of sons, that maturing to full status and maturity in in God is theirs. By rights it's theirs. All of that belongs to them. And from them came the Messiah who is blessed of God forever. And Paul can't help but say, Amen. Israel is God's chosen people. And central to everything he's doing. I say it often. I want to say it again until you can't forget it. The only culture created directly by God is Israel. The nations were scattered at Babel. And then God took Israel and said, you're going to follow my ways. You're not going to be like the Egyptians. You're not going to be like the Canaanites. You're going to walk in my ways and you will be a light to the nations. Israel is central to that. And Paul's heart is broken because the Gentiles are accepting the gospel and much of Israel is turning away from it. Much of his difficulty are coming from his fellow Jews who are following him him around in the diaspora and causing problems for him. But he wants to remind us and the Romans, that this doesn't mean that God's word has failed. Verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And they are not all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. That's a critical verse. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So he gives one example, now another one. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Though the twins were not yet born, it had not done anything good or bad. So that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not based on works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. Drawing on the Torah, Paul addresses what he's been talking about. What if some do not believe? 
He said that in chapter 3. Does that void it? Here he says the same thing. Is God's faithfulness impugned because there are Jews who don't believe? He says not at all. Because not all who descended from Israel are Israel. And he gives two examples. Abraham had Ishmael. And Abraham had Isaac. One was of the flesh and one of promise. Now what, what Paul is talking about is one is natural. It's just the way of humans. And the other one was God's promise coming to pass. And God waited until Abraham was past childbearing. And Sarah was certainly past childbearing. And then he said, now I'm going to give you that son. This is not going to be by your efforts. You're not going to do this by your works. This is going to be done by promise, by grace, through faith. Trust me. And so, Paul tells them that the love and promise is through God, not through the works of Abraham. And then he says, and then Isaac, they've got twins. And before those children are even born, God says... Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now, have to translate here a little English. When you and I say, I love this and I hate this, we tend to think of things like food and cars and movies and stuff like that. This emotional attachment and rejection. That is not what God is saying. Biblical love is to do for someone, and biblical hate is to not do for them. It's not to feel, I just hate Esau, I can't stand That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to do for Jacob. He's the one of promise. I'm not going to do for Esau. Esau's the one who is going to not find repentance, though he seeks it bitterly with tears. Because he doesn't care about the birthright. There's not a faith aspect from him. But there is in Isaac. By faith we stand in this grace. The promise of God does not depend on Abraham's genes. It's Abraham's faith that Paul talked about earlier in there. The faith of Abraham that is in Jews and in Gentiles. So we pick it up at verse 14. Paul's been anticipating all through the text that we'll read the text and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, right? And we have some response. So he's just going to nip that in the bud and give you the response ahead of time. So he says, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or wants it, or the man who runs or does it, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and whom he hardens, he hardens. 
So Paul then goes back to the Torah. Remember, he says, none of this is independent of the Torah. It's independent of works. The idea is not that God delivered us from the Torah. He delivered us from the law of sin and death, right? And so he's going back and saying, this is all testified in the Torah. So what is he saying? When God spoke to Moses and Moses said, let me see your glory. And God said, well, I'm not going to let you do that. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put this little cleft in the rock over here. And I'll, you, I'll put you in there. I'll, put, I'll go and I'll pass by. And you'll see, if you will, the afterglow of my, of my glory. And as he did, he says, The Lord, whose loving kindness is forever, who has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and compassion on whom he will have compassion. That's God's name. That's who he is. That's his nature to be merciful and to have compassion. The mercy and, and grace of God does not depend on the person who wants it or the person who works for it, but on God who shows mercy to the sinner. And then God says, I harden whom I want to harden and I have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So he has mercy on Moses and he hardens Pharaoh. And in both cases, regardless, God is glorified and his name is manifest. Well, that sounds even worse. God's picking favorites. You know? By the way, I'm his favorite. That's what grace is. He favors me. Does he favor me because I earned it? No. But God does that. So Paul's going to address that. Verse 19. You will say to me then, so why does he find fault? Who's resisted his will? You know, if Moses got mercy... Because God wanted it. And Pharaoh was hardened because God wanted it. Why does he... How can he judge that? Paul says, on the contrary. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel of honor uh, and another for common use? What if God, willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. That's us. Whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now this is the tough part. This is where we we're going to let God have it, right? We're sitting on our throne and we're judging God. 
I don't think you're doing this right, God. You know, you should, you should have this standard for us, and then we can earn it. And then we know who's good and who's bad. Okay? Paul's already told us who's good and who's bad. God's good, we're bad. Right? So he understands our objection as we sit on our own throne to judge God. His will is done by both, so why is God judging? So Paul says, well, let me tell you the first part. first part is this. God's the creator. He made you. And because He's the creator, He can judge you however He wants. His standards are right. So he takes sinful clay, catch this, sinful clay, and from the same lump. Did you know that Moses and Pharaoh were from the same lump? If you've got the idea that Moses was a great guy, because you saw Charlton Heston, right? And Pharaoh was a bad guy because he was bald, right? Then you are missing the point. All humanity. Paul says we're all sinners. We all deserve the condemnation of God. There is none righteous. We have all gone our own way. We have all fallen short of the glory. He established that at the beginning. He said, I want you to remember that. So what God is doing is He's demonstrating His wrath and His mercy. Who deserves His wrath? All of us. So when he hardens Pharaoh's heart, he is not changing Pharaoh's nature. Read the scriptures. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He's finally crushing under the power of God and so God hardens his heart. He's giving Pharaoh what he wants. And what he deserves. But he's not given Moses what he deserves. He's given Moses his mercy. And so what he says is, God can from that sinful clay make a vessel of wrath that he will endure patiently. Turn, please turn. Turn to me and I will save you. Turn to me and I will save you. I'm not turning. Then he takes a vessel like me who's running away from him and he grabs him and says, no. I'm keeping you. The same rotten clay as the other guy. And Paul tells us that. Look among yourselves. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the weak things and the base things and the things that are nothing, to bring to nothing the things that are. Moses was the meekest man in the earth. You think that's coincidence? It's God's grace in him. And Pharaoh was probably one of the most arrogant in the earth. That's not coincidence. That's human nature. So Paul says, 
So God has called Jews, some Jews and some Christians, some Gentiles, to come to him and to be those vessels made for honorable use. That, my friends, is amazing grace. Now Paul's going to say this idea that God would do the Jews and the Gentiles is also not new. And he's going to finish out the chapter with that one. So in in verse 25, he says this. He says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning uh, Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel as the sand and the sea, it is a remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And then, as Isaiah says, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a posterity, a remnant, we would not, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. So it's important to understand that Paul's talking to people who know these texts. So if you go back to Hosea, I always tell people Hosea's in that part of your Bible that still looks new. <clears throat> in Hosea chapter 2, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, I'm just going to get to the end of it in there. But if you pick it up around uh, 14, uh, in this section, God starts by saying, Israel's unfaithful. Israel's the same lump as the nations. Sinful flesh. And they rebel against God. They rebel against God. He just says, a, a, you know, a, you just won't follow me. But he says in verse 14, but I will draw you back to me. And he continues down. He says, and I will betroth you to me. And I will bring you back into the land. And when I bring you back into the land, no one will ever bother you again. God will keep His promise to Israel. But He's going to expand that promise. Remember the promise to Abraham was, in you all the peoples, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, in verse 23, at the end of that verse, uh, that chapter, He says this, I will sow her for Myself in the land. I will have compassion on her who has not had compassion And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. That's us. God will say to Israel, you are my people, and they will say, you are our God. He'll say, then get back here. Return to me. But to us who aren't even His people, He'll say, you are my people, and we'll say, you are our God. Got to read that whole context. Paul's assuming... That people know what's going on here. That the Gentiles are being added to Israel. We're not replacing Israel. He's going to talk about that in the next chapters. Like I said, I can't cover it all today. We are added. We are not replacement. So then he quotes Isaiah. 
And in Isaiah, he goes to chapter 28. Well, I'm going to wait for that because I want to read the I want to read 30 to 33 in in Romans, so I have the context here. Paul says in verse uh, 30 of Romans 9, "What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel." Pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. They came short of the glory of God. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though by works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now God has said that a remnant will be saved of Israel. Not all Israel will be saved. We'll talk more about the remnant later, but Paul introduces that here. So, in 30 uh, through 32, he says, They stumbled over a stumbling stone, as it is written, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a block of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So, this stumbling stone that's tripping up Israel... Remember, many people, many Gentiles at the time of Paul's writing are coming to the faith. Don't, they don't have these commandments of God. They don't have these covenants of God. They don't have this, say, I think we need to do this and that'll, that'll get us saved. They're just told, you're a wretch. And God is calling you to Him through His Son, whom He raised from the dead. And they're going, where do I sign? Not all the Gentiles. Many of them see this gospel as foolishness. Paul says, the foolishness of the cross and the preaching of the cross is what he has given. The Jews are seeking a sign. The Gentiles are seeking wisdom. and That doesn't sound like wisdom. But there are some who are coming. But there's a stumbling stone for Israel that prevented them from the righteousness of faith. They had somehow come to the conclusion that they could achieve righteousness by works, that is, by obeying the Torah. But they couldn't, because Paul says, when the Torah gives you the command, that law of sin and death rises up in you, and you end up being worse than you were before. They should have known that. Paul's bothered and grieved that they can't, that they think they can find righteousness by their own efforts. And he quotes Isaiah 28. Now, if you go to Isaiah 28, God lets Israel have it because of their arrogance and their pride. The Bible says that God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Nobody gets 
prouder than somebody who accomplishes something. And so what Israel was doing is, they were obeying some of the commandments, ignoring the ones that blew up in their face, and then judging other people. Now that's not a, a thing that's exclusive to Israel. We have church history now, and we know we're just as bad at that as, as they were. Because human nature wants to self-justify based on my performance. You know, sin is what you do that I don't like. So we got this group griping that this group is sinning this way, and this group is sinning this way, and this group's got a false doctrine here, this group's got a false doctrine here. We're doing the same thing. And God rebukes the pride and the arrogance because no one can boast before God, Paul says. And so what he says here, and this verse is really fascinating, verse 9. To whom will he teach knowledge, in verse chapter 28? And to whom will he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, here a little, there a little. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. We'll get to that later. He who said to them, here is rest. So, here's what they're doing. They're taking the scripture. We're going to study the scripture. We're going to do the scripture. We're going to figure out all the ways that we can't violate this thing. We're going to do it. We're going to get fixated on our performance before God. Not our need of God. And God says, I want to give you rest. Here is repose. But they would not listen. So the word will be to them, order on order, order on order, line upon line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backwards, be broken, snared, and taken captive. That's what Paul says. The very commandment given to give us life produced death. Because we get into performance mode. And when we get into performance mode, we not only judge each other, but we judge God. It's pride and arrogance that is a manifestation of sin. Humbleness is a manifestation of brokenness and repentance. He said, I'm going to lay in Zion a cornerstone. I'll put a measuring stone by which they can see, but they can't see it. Now, Peter's also going to speak about this. The stumbling of Israel and the awakening of Gentiles. Paul's going to talk a lot more about that. We'll do that next week and the following week. But it's important that you see that Paul is explaining to us what's going on. We have not listened to that message. In 1 Peter chapter 2.
Remember, it talked about newborn babes. He he starts that that way. Like newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. So that you will grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Coming to Him as living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. And you as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is contained in Scripture. I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and the one who believes in Him will not be disappointed. The precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builder rejected has become the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, even at Paul's time, Israel had reached a point of believing with the temple and with everything that they could they could merit God's blessing, I guess, his salvation. And Paul says they stumbled over the Messiah coming to take away sin first and then coming back to rule over. So he says many of the Jews of his time had fallen into a view that they could gain salvation and the promises by the works of the Torah. I hear this again in the ultra-Orthodox. They say, Messiah will come if we will do one more commandment, one more mitzvah, one more thing. But don't think that's unique to Jews, because I hear Christians doing this thing. We reach one more soul for Jesus and He'll come back. Right? We always have to turn it into a works thing. Paul knew that when you focus on that kind of obedience... It leads to arrogance and self-righteousness. And that was in part keeping them from Christ. And I think that's true of many so-called Christians today who believe that they will earn the grace of God. These are the ones that Jesus, they'll say, Lord, Lord, we did this and we did this and we did this and we did this. He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now we have to stop here because I'm out of time. I want you to keep reading chapters 9, 10, 11. Paul's going to explain some other reasons why Israel missed the gospel and how God's faithfulness to Israel will still be seen. And he's going to warn us not to boast against Israel or become arrogant in ourselves. As you think about these things, I want to warn you that Paul is speaking in broad terms about Israel and the nations. And at the point that he's writing, the gospel is based on the God of Israel and the Messiah of Israel and the death, burial, and resurrection of that Messiah of Israel. It's not what we've turned it into. Say these words, Jesus loves you and you can live your life and you'll go to heaven. Between the writing of Paul's words and today, a lot of things related to faith, calling, and even the person of Jesus has been changed, I think, in damaging ways. So we need to look at these texts carefully before we decide who's saved and who's not saved. just want to give you one little notion. Jesus said something that has 
always affected me uh, because I was raised up in the parachurch and we had a formula for how to get saved. You know, you're a sinner. Jesus came to for you. Say these words. Now you're saved. Done. Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One man said, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. I fast twice a week. I do. I give tithes. I do all this. I'm. I'm obedient. You owe me, God. I'm special. Now that could have been a Jew or a Gentile, right? That's human nature. The other guy came up and couldn't even do the. Their typical thing was to look up to the Lord. He couldn't even do it. He said, "Lord." Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. He didn't talk about Abraham or Moses or anything else. He humbled himself before the God of Israel, begging for his mercy and his salvation. His salvation's name is Yeshua, the Lord saves. He who calls upon the name of the Lord, even if he doesn't fully understand it, in a humble heart, will be saved. And the one who thinks, I've got it all worked out, i got the theology straight, and i got the work straight, probably is in a greater danger of not being saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us through these difficult texts that we not boast against Israel. We not dismiss Israel. On the other hand, Lord, we know that only a remnant, ultimately, of the nations and a remnant of Israel are saved. Not because we're better. We're the same lump. We're the same clay. But there's a difference when your grace comes upon us that causes us to humble ourselves before you versus becoming religious and becoming obedient and becoming arrogant and judgmental. Help us, Lord, to stay humble before you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Q&A. I figure today it will be zero or we'll be here forever. Um, oh, a stone of stumbling and block of offense, are those common terms? Because I don't believe I've read those before, and they seem too specific or like on the nose to be to not yeah, be they, expressions they, they, of the time. When, when you build a building mm-hmm. in the ancient world, you would set a cornerstone on one corner, and that set the measurement for the building in both directions. So if that cornerstone was off, the building would be off. So it's it's related to measurement, right? And what he's saying is that I'm gonna I'm gonna make that so that you will look at that and see what he did, and you will understand him. And instead, they trip over it. 
Oh, so the cornerstone becomes the stone of stumbling. Yes. Ah. Okay, that makes more sense. Oh, that's good. That's good question because there may have been other people that didn't catch that because I didn't make it that clear. So good. Yeah, Paul's going to say, did they stumble as, so as to fall? God forbid. So we'll get to that. There are, there's, God's doing something, and we're not on the committee. So we, we don't get to judge it, and we don't get to fix it, right? He knows what he's doing. We're, he wants us to trust him, that he'll work that out. But, but it's still grieving Paul terribly when he sees what's going on. Uh, Ahava uh, is, I can't remember the hate word. Ahava is similar to agapeo in Greek. Uh, but it's the idea of love is you do for someone. You give to them when they, if they're hungry, you feed them. If they're thirsty, you give them to drink. And if you don't, you're hating them. So it's, it's that kind of, it's not an emotion. We, we live so much in an emotional world, uh, particularly in the postmodern world, uh, that we think emotions are the most real thing. And, and the Bible says you can have emotions, but they can't make you sin. Right? Be angry, but sin not. Yeah, God so loved us that he gave up his son. Right? Uh, I don't think God was up there going, they're so cute, i got to have one. I don't think that's what he did. I thought he went, they're a mess. They're in desperate need. I'm going to. I'm going to provide. Right, right. In that sense, Pharaoh was also hated in that God didn't do for him. He he, but he used him for his glory. I mean, we get used for God's glory either way. That's why it's just amazing that we're objects of His mercy. Because we're the same stuff as those who are objects of his wrath. And we deserve what they deserve. It's not like we're better than them. If we become better, that's God's grace working in us. It's not because we're better stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And that's hard to believe about yourself. Particularly in a culture that wants us to have real good self-esteem and all that kind of thing. He tried. He tried. I think he was buckling. And so the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. Then it says he called Moses in, said, leave. And then he says, God hardened his heart. Yeah. Yeah. But God knew beforehand, you know, Pharaoh only softened his heart because he was crushing under God's power. Not, he was not submitting to God in humility. He was just given in, right? So God said, no, I'll, I'll, I'll reinforce you so you can... Because I still got some plagues to do, right? I'm not done yet. Yeah. We get, you, you'll see all through the scriptures those who humble themselves. I don't think we humble ourselves because we're better at humbling. I think we... I think God humbles us and when we see it, then we try to stay within that. Are we all back? No, we're not back. Okay, going to put the uh, scriptures back.
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us through your word and spirit and has written your commandments on our hearts. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us through your word and spirit and causes us to hope in your Son, our Savior. Creator of the universe, who sustains us in your mercy, holds us in your love, and that we may hope in you and in your salvation. All right, let's gather one another with the blessing of the Lord. says that since our salvation is not of works, there is no place for boasting. So as the scripture says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The Lord has been merciful to us. <laughs> 